Hey, Blackhawk Church, thanks for joining us. Hey, today we're going to continue in our series uh, through the book of Psalms, and we're calling this series, If I'm Honest, If I'm Honest. And uh, we have prepared for you uh, a prayer guide to help you uh, through uh, this summer. So it's 90 days of prayer, uh, daily prayers through the Psalms. So I would really encourage you to kind of check that out. You can go to our Next Steps blog page and you can uh, find uh, that material. Hey, listen, everybody, uh, COVID-19 is uh, real. We can't do anything uh, to change that. It's happening. It's all around us. However, we can change our response and what's going on inside of us. So you might find yourself really depressed and discouraged. Let me ask you a question. Have you found that prayer guide, and are you paying attention to what God has to say in the book of Psalms. We're providing that for you, so that might be a help uh, to you. So uh, today's message in this series is about a subject that, if I'm honest, it just blows my mind. If I'm honest, what I'm going to talk about today is like, when I talk about it, it just sounds wrong. It just sounds wrong because it's a subject that, well, like the song goes, it's, it's amazing. Today, I'm going to talk about God's grace. And I know I've been a pastor for a long time, but I can tell you right now, I do not understand God's grace. God's grace is beyond my ability to comprehend. Here's a definition, a short definition of God's grace. God's grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. That means, and one of my favorite authors, a guy named Philip Yancey, used to say this, there is nothing that I can do to cause God to love me more. Hear that? If it's unmerited favor... There is nothing, there is nothing I can do to cause God to love me more. And the corollary, there's nothing I can do to cause God to love me less. If his love for me is based on his grace, which is unmerited favor, that makes no sense. Because in our world, Everything that happens to us usually is because, well, we've, I mean, people just graduated from high school. That's, it's not because of grace, it's because you earned it. I mean, uh, when you get a check from your employer, it's not because of grace, it's because you did something. You earned it. Pretty much everything that happens in our life is good. We have done something to deserve that, but God's grace is completely different, it's completely different. Am I too excited here? It's unmerited favor. I used to tell uh, pastors on our teaching team that if you're doing a good job of explaining God's grace, the audience should think that you're crazy. It sounds wrong. Because grace is unlike anything, anything that we deal with on a regular basis. Many times uh, over the last 36 years as I've preached messages on grace, I've well, had somebody come up to me after a message. You know, that's the pre-COVID days. Do you remember those days when we actually gathered? 
And somebody would come up to me and they would be crying and they would be saying to me, they would say, Pastor Chris, I really appreciate your talk, but you have, you have no idea. And then they usually, their lips would be quivering and they would be just tearing up and they would say, you would not understand what a wicked and sinful person I am. You just have no idea. And you know, I just do my very best to listen and I put my hand on her shoulder and say, no matter what you have, no matter what you have done, God's love for you has not changed because it was never based, never based on whether you did anything good or bad. It's based upon his grace and grace is unmerited favor. Today we're going to look at a poem that's written by a scoundrel. Somebody who, if I did what this guy did, well, I wouldn't be standing here right now. I would be arrested. I'd be in jail someplace. This is a scoundrel. His name is David. And the poem he wrote is one of the most famous poems about grace. It's Psalm 51. So grab your device, grab your Bible, and read through Psalm 51. Listen to this. Watch this. Psalm 51. Salmo 51. Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Ten compasión de mí, oh Dios, conforme a tu gran amor. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Yo reconozco mis transgresiones. Siempre tengo presente mi pecado. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Yo sé que soy malo de nacimiento. Pecador me concibió mi madre. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Anunciame gozo y alegría. Infunde gozo en estos huesos que has quebrantado. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. No me alejes de tu presencia ni me quites tu santo espíritu. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Dios mío, Dios de mi salvación, líbrame de derramar sangre y mi lengua alabará tu justicia. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. El sacrificio que te agrada es un espíritu quebrantado. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. In your good pleasure make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. Los holocaustos del todo quemados, y sobre tu altar se ofrecerán becerros. That's a great, 
It's a great psalm about God's, God's unmerited favor, his grace. David appeals to God's grace right away. In fact, he never specifically refers to his sins at all, at all. In fact, if you didn't know the background, you wouldn't know what he's talking about. The historical background is in the preface of uh, the psalm. We see that in the very first part. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you have a New International Version, an NIV, those words are italicized. And sometimes people think, well, they're in italics, so that means that maybe the editor uh, of the English Bible put that there. That's not true. Those words are supplied by in the original text. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, those are verses 1 and 2 right there. And our English verse 1 is actually Hebrew verse uh, 3. And it gives the background. After uh, today's message, I'd encourage you to go and look up uh, these two chapters. Uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. That's the background of Psalm 51. Just to kind of speed things up, let me tell you uh, the story. 2 Samuel 11, 1 starts out uh, like this. Uh, in the spring of the year when kings normally go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. He's probably in his late 40s and he has, he has accomplished a lot. And it's a time when kings normally go out and conquer, but he stayed home. And when his armies were out, he stayed and from the top of his palace, he looked down from his rooftop and he saw a young woman bathing. And his mind went to lust immediately. He inquired, Who, who's that beautiful young woman? And someone said, well, one of your military commanders, Uriah the Hittite, that's his wife. And David said, I want her. He wanted to have sex with her. So she was summoned, and they have sex, and she becomes pregnant. She tells David that she's pregnant, so in order to uh, cover it up, David hatches a plan, and his plan is this. Um, I want someone to go uh, to the battlefield against the Ammonites, it's like three days journey, and I, I want them to find Uriah the Hittite and bring him back. So uh, maybe when he gets back, then he'll sleep with his wife and that will cover, cover up uh, what I've just done. So that's what happens. When Uriah the Hittite gets back, because he's a man of integrity, he doesn't actually go home and eat and sleep with his wife Bathsheba. No, he, he kind of sleeps on the street. And David says, like, why did you do that? And he said, well, I can't enjoy myself while my men are out in battle. So the next day, David throws a banquet in Uriah's uh, honor, and he gets him drunk, hoping that in a drunken stupor, he'll now go home and sleep with his wife, and Uriah does not do that. So the next day, David writes up execution orders for Uriah. He writes them down, rolls them up in a scroll, and he gives them to Uriah, knowing that Uriah will not look at them, 
And Uriah then takes those three days' journey back and gives that scroll to a man named Joab, the commander of the army. And that scroll says basically put Uriah out in the middle of a place where he's going to be inundated by the enemy fire and back up and leave him alone. He basically is sentencing Uriah to death. Well, that's what happens. And he dies. Nine months go by and the baby is born. Soon after Uriah dies, he takes Bathsheba in to be his own wife. So it's the cover-up. So people would think, well, it's all legitimate. Her husband's dead. But Nathan the prophet, he confronts David of his sin. And he spins a story about a rich man who had everything, who takes advantage of a poor man who had only one precious thing. And David hears that story and he, he leaps up in anger and he says, that is unjust. And Nathan looks at David and says, you're the man, you're the man who's filled with injustice. And then Nathan says this to David. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. After Nathan confronted him, the baby born to Bathsheba and David, the baby dies as a consequence of David's sin. And then David, in his agony and his pain, writes Psalm 51. And the first thing David does is he appeals to God's grace. Did you see that? Look at verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from all my sin. There's a triad of God's grace there. Did you see that? Have mercy on me. Have mercy, probably be better translated, uh, be gracious to me, O God. Your unfailing love, your great compassion. Have mercy translates the Hebrew word chanan. Chanan is the standard Hebrew word for uh, grace. I'm not sure why they translated it, have mercy. It's about his grace. Hanan is where we get the, the name Hannah. Any, anybody whose name's Hannah, their name is really a grace. Three words about God's grace right off the front. Boom, boom. Have mercy according to your unfailing love, your great compassion. And then a triad of words about his sin. Did you see that? Look back at that verse. Transgressions iniquity, sin, and then poetically, a triad about the washing of that. Did you see that, those three words? Blot out, wash away, cleanse me. Because of God's grace. Listen, listen. Because of God's grace. His sin, his horrible sin, is washable. Sin is washable because of God's grace. And this is emphasized over and over and over again 
in this psalm. Did you see all those words? These words repeated, blot out, wash away, cleanse me, cleanse me, wash me, hide your face, blot out, create in me, renew in me, do not cast me from your spirit, do not take your spirit from me, restore to me, grant to me, save me, grace, 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 grace. The appeal in this psalm is to God's grace. Right after he appeals to God's grace, he has this marvelous confession. Did you see that? Verses three and four. Here's his confession. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and then what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified in you, as you judge. He, he, his confession is such a great confession. Many times people go, Pastor Chris, what, what, what makes a good confession? Psalm 51 is a classic example of it. Here, let's look at what a confession is not and what a confession is. A confession is not recalling your past good deeds to lessen the weight and the guilt of your shame. He, David doesn't go to God and say, God, you know, because of all the great things that I have done, and he's done, he killed Goliath the giant. Uh, he, he had conquered many nations. Uh, he had brought the ark back into Jerusalem. He is done. He's a great king. He's done all kinds of things, but he doesn't appeal to any of those things. A good confession doesn't go back to, you know, God, I've done this for you, and I've done this. A good confession doesn't do that. A good confession doesn't shift blame, justify wrong behavior. To his credit, he never says anything about Bathsheba. Well, look what, when you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, Bathsheba, the, the, the text is very clear. The guilt belongs to David. It's like the Me Too movement. Powerful man taking advantage of a woman. She's an innocent victim. He, he is the one who's guilty. And when he confesses his sin, he never shifts blame and tries to justify. Well, look at, he never does that. What is a good confession? A good confession is personal. You see this throughout the psalm. My sin, I have over and over. It's not about other people. It's about what I've done. A good confession is painful. He is in pain as he writes this. He is, in, is, he is in pain because of the consequences of the sin that he has committed. He talks about the fact that his bones feel like they've been crushed. He wants God to restore the joy of his salvation. He is in pain as he confesses this. A good confession also points towards God. Did you see that? Verse four, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, when you read that, you just go, that sounds wrong. I mean, what about, what about Bathsheba? Uriah. I mean, and all the people who saw the lie and knew the truth. I mean, he's sinning against all of those people, but yet he says here, against you and you only have I sinned. 
Why does he say that? Well, in a poetic way, David is getting to the moral lawgiver who says murder is wrong? God does. Who says lust and adultery is wrong? God does. And he's going right to the moral lawgiver. And that's what Nathan did when Nathan confronted him. This is what Nathan says, 2 Samuel 12. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? It goes right to that. By doing what is evil in his eyes, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, took his wife to be your own, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. These things are wrong because God says that they are wrong. And so he goes right to the moral lawgiver. Against you, I've sinned. And then, a good confession is just pointed to God. But a good confession gets to the problem, the problem of sin. That's in verse five. Surely, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Behold, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom even in that secret place in the in the hebrew uh, verse five and verse six start with the same hebrew word so you, you see a parallelism in hebrew you don't see it in english so like this behold i was sinful at birth verse six behold you desired faithfulness david is going back to the original problem and the original problem is his sinfulness he's sinful because he's a human being and he's related to adam he is sinful and he was sinful before he was ever born. He was sinful, he says, be, when my mother conceived me, I was, I was sinful in the womb. And then this amazing passage about the fact that before he spoke a word, before he breathed a breath, before he was born, God loves him see that's the grace part I was talking about I mean he doesn't deserve, he hasn't done anything he's not been born yet but grace is unmerited favor and God is working with unborn David and is, is longing for him to be faithful and he's teaching him even while he's in the womb. Very powerful. As an aside, uh, this is another one of those passages. Uh, Pastor Matt uh, talked about one a few weeks ago from Psalm 139 that makes it very clear that uh, biblically speaking, the unborn child is a human being. God seeks to have a relationship with that unborn human being. Um, at Blackhawk Church, we believe that unborn children are children. They're human beings, and they deserve a, a right to live, just like the mother. Sometimes in our world today, this is referred to as the pro-life position. We demonstrate our uh, pro-life um, 
passion here at Blackhawk Church by supporting an organization called CareNet and uh, the Mother Child Resources. If you didn't uh, watch the video that was before this message, I would encourage you uh, to do that. I mean, Mother Child Resources at Blackhawk, you guys, did you get that? So for 20, 21 years, that ministry has helped, really through Maryland's leadership, over 4,500 children. Someone say amen to that. Praise God. Mothers who are in a desperate situation with a pregnancy maybe that was not planned, and we come alongside and help them. Praise God. You know, can I just, can I do this? Well, I don't know. I'm asking your permission. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm just going to do a little sidebar here. Uh, because um, I, have a, I have a feeling that some of you are, might be like, what's happening here? You know, as we've said the last few weeks, uh, the dominant cultural narrative in Madison uh, today, in this world, is politics. It's not the Bible, it's politics. I mean, duh. I mean, just think in your own life about, uh, compare the amount of time that you watch news feeds, compare the amount of time you meditate over the word of God. Just compare those two. The dominant cultural narrative is uh, politics. And uh, what I just said has a political implications. Generally speaking, uh, the Republican Party favors legislation which protects the life of the unborn child. Generally speaking, uh, the Democrats put their emphasis on the, the mother and her reproductive freedom. If she wants to uh, terminate the life that is inside of her, well, that should be her choice. I'm not saying that all Democrats are in favor of abortion. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that all Republicans are pro-life. I'm not saying that. But just, we understand. That's generally speaking, that's the way that uh, goes. And so what I just said seems to line up with the Republican Party. But this is still one issue. And we hit issues at Blackhawk all the time. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was preaching from Psalm 104, and I talked about uh, the environment, and I talked about uh, climate change. Uh, then we also talked about race and how systemic racism is sinful. From time to time at Blackhawk, we talk about human sexuality and the, the fact that the only sexual expression that's affirmed in the Bible is between a man and a woman in a loving marriage. Sometimes we talk about uh, immigration, that uh, God wants us to love on people who are searching for their new country. Sometimes we talk about poverty and justice, and it, and, and it can cause frustration uh, with, with people who watch. And, and you go, oh my, what, what is Blackhawk? I mean, what are you guys, you know? I mean, are you guys Republicans or Democrats? I mean, today you sound like a Republican. Last week you sound like a Democrat. I go, what are, we, what are you guys? So let me just try to be clear of this. We are neither. We're neither. We are Bible first people. And sometimes as we read the Bible, it will affirm or challenge a particular political party and then another passage will affirm or challenge another particular political party. We welcome both Republicans and Democrats. We're not partisan. We're biblical. I mean, for heaven's sake, did you notice what I'm wearing today? I mean, I got red on. I got blue on. How do you like the shoes right here? There you go. Welcome both of you. 
Our task here is to be biblical first. And as we challenge the dominant frameworks in either party, we'll try to do it with tact and humility and grace and honesty. But we're Bible first people at Blackhawk. And that was a sidebar. It has nothing to do with Psalm 51. So let's go back to Psalm 51. He has a petition in verse 7. Here is his petition. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. The, uh, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop is probably not a word you use in everyday language. This is what hyssop plant uh, looks like. And you can see uh, that uh, it's fashioned in such a way that you can actually take stems from a hyssop plant and use it as a brush. And the Hebrew people would take the hyssop plant and dip it in a bowl of blood. And in fact, uh, for the Passover, the original Passover, they would do this and then they would um, put blood on the door frames on the side and then on the top with hyssop. So he's basically saying, cleanse me with hyssop. Take that blood and wash me with hyssop. And what he's saying here is that my sin is washable. It's not permanent. Now does that mean that there are no consequences to what you said? No, 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 no. There are consequences. In fact, if you read the Hebrew narrative, uh, really, David's life after 2 Samuel 12 just starts to dissolve. He, they lost the child that was born. There are consequences. And so we can't think that we can just sin willy-nilly and then it's, there's not going to be any consequence. There are going to be consequences. I mean, do you guys see that? Do you follow that? Here, let me give you an example. Let's this stupid example. Let's say, let, there's only about four people in the room right now. Let's say I came down off this platform and uh, the, the, the person behind the camera right now is a guy named Barrick. What imagine, Barrick, would you enjoy it if I like clobbered you and maybe even took something and like killed you? Would you enjoy that? Uh, no. Yeah, right, no. Uh, so that's, you know what? If I did that, what would happen to me? I would be, well, I'd be fired, <laughs> yes, and I would be thrown in jail. There's consequences for that. But my relationship with God, if I come to him with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, God, he'll forgive me. He can forgive me because his forgiveness and his love for me is based upon his grace. There's nothing I can do to cause God to love me more, and there's nothing I can do, in kill, in, including killing Barak, that can cause God to love me less because his love for me is based upon his grace. It just sounds wrong, doesn't it? That's, that's grace. Notice in verse 10, he, he wants a, a renewed heart. 
Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's hungering for a new heart. If your confession, if your confession is like, well, God, I did this, please forgive me, and then I'm just gonna go back and do it again. That's, you're, you're not hungering for a new heart. You're not hungering for transformed heart. You're, you're treating God's grace with disrespect. God wants us to depend upon his grace, but he wants us also to hunger for transformation, a new heart, to see the evilness of our wicked sin. You can see that David does this in verse 16. He writes, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. A broken heart, a broken spirit translates a Hebrew word that means pulverized. It's just, it is just, it basically says to God, I, I got nothing here. I got nothing. I got nothing here. I'm just coming to you, God. I'm just coming to you. When we come to God like that, with its broke, with nothing, God's grace reaches into our lives, transforms our hearts, and God forgives our sins. I have a friend who's one of the pastors on our staff named Chris Kopp. He recently wrote a song, and in the song we see these lyrics. I'm holding on to you and letting go. I'm pressing into what is true. I wanna lose myself again and be found in you. These words remind me of, a, of the, the, the classic, um, it's kind of the, the words of Jesus that are like a, it's like a paradox. It's the, one of those upside down kind of things. Basically, if I, if I seek to control and gain my life, I'll lose it. But if I lose my life, I'll gain it. It's like if I come to God and just say, I'm done, I am done. And we depend upon God's grace. We find a gift of life from him, enables us to move on. Listen to this song that Chris wrote, watch. Either way, I'm coming clean So this can't fall apart and blow to smithereens Or I can't leave here by your side But 
darkness light the way to all I hold inside Because it's all about to break And I will rise And I will fall But I'm holding on to you And letting go I'm pressing in To what is true I want to lose myself again And be found in you
Hey, listen, many of us, just, we just need to come clean right now. We need to come clean with God. We need to, we need to just confess, confess our sin. You guys, I'm a sinful man. My heart is, is bent like a, a bent stick. We're all sinful people. And in order for our relationship to God to be what it is, we need to come to him and just, and just confess sin. And some of us are thinking, Pastor Chris, my sin is so great. Listen, listen. Before you, when you were in your mother's womb, God loved you. His love for you is not based upon anything that you have done or not done. It's based upon his grace. Come to God. Come to God and appeal to his grace. You pray this with me, these, these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Amen.